Good afternoon. This is Rich Nash, Executive Vice President with Open Systems Media and leader of the Embedded and IoT franchises, here with my partner in crime, Brandon Lewis, the Editor-in-Chief of Embedded Computing Design for our weekly Embedded Insiders podcast. Hello, Brandon. How are you? Doing well. How are you, Rich? I am doing pretty good, pretty good. Um, so what's new? Oh, not much. My Diamondbacks are imploding as we speak. We were well, that's three a good games thing, up and now we're a game and a half back. Well, it's football season, so let's, let's just yeah. move on, okay? <laughs> <laughs> All right, and everybody's headed to the Super Bowl now. Everybody's 0-0, zero, zero, so uh, yep. we'll, we'll have the aspirations. Okay, so this week um, a subject came up that really piqued my curiosity, and... Uh, um, being the millennial that you are, I'll have to shed a little light on this for you. Analog computing. Um, way back in the day, um, that's what ruled the world, analog computers. And then, like, let's see, like I'm going to take a... computing, Analog computing like, like an abacus? Well, not exactly. <laughs> but um, if you go one stage beyond that, I mean, it's actually computers that ran analog technology. Um, but it was, it was far from efficient, and then digital signal processing came along, and I'm going to take a guess that that was probably oh, in the 80s that uh, DSPs sort of hit their stride, and then everything just became digital. Um, however, um, I think we're, we have the potential of swinging that pendulum back with analog computing. Have you heard anything about that? No, I haven't, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of curious to figure out why analog computing would be a, a better alternative today than, uh, you know, our, our digital computers that I at least have only been accustomed to. Um, do you know of anybody who could help us out with that? Well, I, I do, and it's actually ironic because the guy who uh, I know who's, I won't say leading the charge, but is one of the proponents of anal analog computing is a guy who was um, in the same position when we're talking about DSP. A lot of people call him the, the inventor of DSP or the godfather of DSP. And that's, uh, that would be Gene Franz, and he was at Texas Instruments at the time. Um, and uh, he, uh, he really made a name for himself in the DSP place. But um, I hear he's, he's now trying to make a name for himself in analog, and we have him as a guest. That would be Gene Franz, and uh, he is currently the CTO of Octavo Systems, I think he's also a professor at Rice University. Are you with us, Gene? I am here. Okay, so before we start talking about analog, did I introduce you correctly, CTO of Octavio and a professor at Rice? That's right, and, and, and the professor, it's, it's a spe specific position at Rice called professor in the practice, uh, which is an individual who spent their career in industry and is now at the university to help the students see uh, the reality of technology. Very good. So speaking of realities of technology, um, what can you tell us about analog computing? Okay, let me, uh, I'll, I'll make one correction. It was about the 70s when microcontrollers were invented and uh, analog computing went away. Uh, and and it was, the, the reason was simple. When, once you went to digital, you solved all sorts of problems that you continue to have in the analog world, like... Uh, uh, linearity, accuracy, noise. Uh, so a lot of things went to the right direction once you went digital. Uh, 
I was part of that team that went out to industry and to the universities and said, you no longer need analog experts. Everything's digital. Go with it. And now I'm looking back and seeing how much advantage we now have with the analog options. And a lot of it has to do with the advancements of integrated circuit technology in general. When the DSPs were at their peak or beginning to be at their peak, we were in the micron range, you know, one micron or left, uh, less. Now we're in the uh, nanometer range where uh, a lot of the silicon is getting small enough that we can actually do some things that we couldn't do 30 years ago. And so it's time to relook at what we could do in the analog world, uh, not in place of the digital world, but as a complement to the digital world. And so what we're really talking about is not necessarily analog signal processing or analog computing, but mixed signal computing where the control is still in the world of the digital, but uh, in some cases the best way, place to process a signal is in its original domain, which is analog. So, are, so are you talking about mix, are you talking about mixed signal within a system or mixed signal within a within an IC? Uh, within an IC. Very interesting. Okay. So, so Gene, you you touched on um you know the move back to analog and what's um, perhaps making it feasible again for that to be deployed widely in computing. What are some of the, the advantages of analog in particular? I imagine that one of them is, is just speed, you know, it may, may be faster. Um, what are some of the other reasons that you would choose to use analog over the widespread digital today? When I talk to the industry about the difference between digital and analog, I focus on the fact that what determines the clock rate of a present-day processor is the multiply function. And, that's one of the reasons why and it just so happens, and, I, and I'd have to wave my hands a bit, and you can't see that, so I'll, I'll try to be as careful as I can in what I say. Uh, if I look at a 32-bit multiplier, which is pretty typical of today's processors, if I were to divide that 32-bit multiplier into four quadrants, I would have four 16-bit multiplies. Each of those 16-bit multipliers could run four times as or, uh, four times as fast in the same cycle, and also uh, twice the speed uh, of the 32-bit multiplier. Which, at the end of the day, says it would be about an order of magnitude higher performance. So every time you reduce the size of the multiply function by half, you effectively increase the performance of the multiply by about an order of magnitude. Wow. So, so now, then you, if I, go ahead. Well, it, now, so just let me uh, quickly complete this, and that is if I go from 32 to 16 to 8 to 4 to 2 to 1, I, I've kind of increase the performance by five orders of magnitude. Uh, I'm not going to take claim all five of them, but at the same time, I've reduced the power dissipation by about five orders of magnitude and the area size uh, by about three orders of magnitude. So you, you can think about 
what I've done is significantly increase the performance while at the same time significantly reducing the power dissipation and the size. Wow. So what I was going to follow up with on that was that, so I'm assuming your, your lead into this mixed signal sort of IC has to do with the fact that, all right, you have all these advantages of analog computing on the one hand, um, but you're still left with an analog signal. Um, and, you know, what do you do with it? How do you get it out to the rest of the digital world? Um, is that where you were alluding to, the uh, mixture between digital and analog on the same IC? Partially, yes. Part of it is the, the world, the computer world runs digitally, uh, and, and you don't need analog everywhere. Uh, but there are some cases where I might want to start the processing on a signal in the analog domain, then move it over to the digital domain to clean it up and make it work. For example, if I were doing an image processing system, I might do the initial uh, compression of the analog uh, image in the analog domain and then very quickly move it over to the digital mo domain at the appropriate time to, to do the image recognition or the image understanding. But if you're, if you're constantly moving back and forth between the analog and the digital domains, aren't you introducing a fair amount of errors? Aha! Now you're getting to some of those issues, and, and it has to do with noise, it has to do with error introduction. Uh, and as we talked through here at Octavo about what were the issues, uh, the real question that you have to ask yourself is, if I can convince myself that I can gain multiple orders of magnitude, higher performance, and at the same time lower power dissipation, is it possible to solve all these intermediary problems that are significant, but our technology now perhaps has the ability to do that, and, and, and it's issues like noise, linearity, uh, accuracy, uh, dynamic range, all of those end up being issues that have to be overcome to take advantage of this multiple order of magnitude a reduction in power and increase in performance. But is, is it just your opinion that those issues can be overcome, or, or is there some fact that you're basing that on? Uh, let's see, how do I answer that and be, be uh, uh, fair to everybody? We have, I have thought it through and believe there are solutions to all of those aspects the, and I equate this to uh, junior high dance where we have the people on the signal processing side who know how to solve these problems at one wall and the uh, computer architects on the other wall waiting for somebody to get to the middle to start the dance and nobody's dancing. Well, you certainly described my prom, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> So what has to happen to make this a reality? Uh, is, is it a manufacturing question? I believe it's we need to look at the, uh, the theory of signal processing. And at this point, let me just make sure you understand, uh, I separate analog computing from analog signal processing. And let me define those quickly. Analog computing is what we did before 1970, and it's really good at 
doing differential equations, which is uh, kind of a nice thing to do. And analog signal processing, in my mind, is taking all of the theory of, of signal processing that we've built over the last 30 years in the digital domain and applying it to the analog domain. And so that's uh, the, the difference between the two. And uh, if I begin to, to take each problem one at a time, I take linearity. Uh, there's a lot. We, we kind of define linearity as a given. Uh, I was talking to a researcher about uh, linearity and uh, and I said, you do know that a CMOS imager, the image is stored in the analog domain and is not linear. And we call it linear because we run it through a linear A to D converter and then declare it linear. And so I said, rather than say nonlinear, why don't we say prelinear? And it is that kind of thing of how do I resolve the linear issue? Well, it's not always important for things to be linear. I know I, I just violated something, and all my friends in the world of digital signal processing theory will complain, but th th there are solutions to that. Uh, I, I talked to one professor at Georgia Tech uh, who, uh, who I work with closely and, uh, by the name of uh, uh, Jennifer Hassler, and, and I talked her through this issue, and a lot of the new algorithms we have, you have a learning algorithm, so you learn on the system and then you, you test the, the signals coming in later. And as she began to think of it, she said, it looks like if you're going to learn on the same analog system that you're going to test on, that the nonlinears kind of, the, the nonlinear factions kind of solve themselves because you're running the problem over the same system that you learned on. And so there may be a system level solution to linearity just because I'm using the same system. Okay. So Gene, you touched on uh, CMOS imaging, for example. What are some of the other uh, beachheads in terms of applications you see? I, I, imagine, I imagine that um, you know, given the performance increase coupled with the power, um, the power uh, savings that you could that you could grasp through analog computing that maybe some of these you know, node-level systems that we see in an overused buzzword-type IoT application may be able uh, to take advantage, especially because in a lot of cases the, the error rates aren't perhaps maybe that important if you're just paying back you know, some random yes. sensor data. Well, uh, that's right. Machine learning, neural networks, uh, all those things where you're, you're trying to build up a node and to the point where it turns on or turns off, uh, sometimes you're not as, Im uh, as impressed with perfect linearity as you are with relative linearity or relative, relative accuracy. Uh, I'll tell a little story. Um, as we were putting these concepts together, uh, the, the other three guys working on it were more digital than they were analog. And our memory expert kept asking the question, how many bits of analog are on that memory node? And I kept saying, you can't talk about bits of accuracy on an analog memory because it's not digital. And finally, we had to conclude 
uh, a me- or de- derive a method of describing the equivalent number of bits you're storing on an analog node. And so we, we played this game of how do I talk analog from a digital standpoint and how do I talk digital from an analog standpoint. And it was quite interesting to try to get us on the same page of uh, how do we equate what we're doing in the digital world to what we're doing in the analog world. It doesn't surprise me that you have to have that conversation because people, you know, people just don't understand. They just don't get it. Yes, and, and it's not because they're. Uh, I don't want to say that. Uh, 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 that would be just mean to say that. It's because they haven't been taught to appreciate the analog world in digital terms or vice versa. So let's put you on the spot here. Put on your, put on your, pull out your crystal ball. When is something like this, you know, when will it be something that we'll really see? It won't be mainstream, but when will, will we see it as a real product? Boy, I, I, I'm, I'm believing as we go forward, uh, we're probably within a decade of, of doing some useful things in the analog domain. Uh, and so let me step back and tell you why. Uh, when we introduced digital signal processing in the late 70s, early 80s, we had a tremendous number of opportunities of which we could solve in the digital domain. When we did our first DSP at TI, the TMS32010, we had designed it to do uh, voice uh, recognition, speaker recognition, speaker uh, uh, speaker I/O, our digital uh, the speech I/O. We were really looking at the telecommunications world. One day we looked up and noticed that very few of our customers were doing anything to do with speech. What they were doing was hard disk drives, modems, and 3D graphics. And so we quickly and wisely changed our marketing slides to say we designed the 32010 for 3D graphics, hard disk drives, and graphics. Uh, uh, it was just easier than, than trying to tell everybody they were misusing our device. Yep, agreed. What we, what we found with each generation of our DSPs, our customers were using it for things we had not thought about, and so we would have to catch up to them. I find now we're getting to a point where all of those problems that we were solving are beginning to be solved to the point where we're looking at a new set of problems that are either much higher uh, sample rate or much broader amount of data. And so our processors are really running out of capability to do that. The okay. algorithms are still there. It's just that the the math system isn't fast enough. Very good. Uh, I think we're going to wrap here because this is a subject that I think Brandon and I are going to explore a little further, and we may want to get back to you if that's okay with you. I, I am always ready to talk about what's in the future, whether or not it really is there. Awesome. <laughs> That was Gene Franz. He is the CTO of Octavo Systems, and he is also a 
practicing professor, I think is how he put it, at Rice University. I am Rich Nass with Open Systems Media. The other deep voice on the other end was Brandon Lewis. He is with Embedded, Commun Embedded Computing Design. Thanks, Gene. Have a great day. You too, Brandon. Thanks. You too, you Rich. Yeah, bye-bye.